the statements there before you. Uh, and what I'm going to do is walk through the statement. This is a conclusion. It w- I would say it's like a conclusive statement that's almost like a pastoral or brotherly exhortation. How shall we then live in light of what we've studied about the Bible's teaching on sexuality? And of course, we've been addressing the issue of same-sex attraction because that's kind of the the event or the issue of the day, um, really LGBTQ, all of that, not just same-sex attraction, all the sexual uh, confusion and disorderedness and uh, challenges that we have. And every person's affected in some fashion uh, in this area because we're, we're all sinners and we have sinful desires that we've done our best to address and see where, what they mean and what they're about. Let's walk through the statement in the time we have here. Um, in the very first statement, it says, we affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. Now, let me explain why this was placed here. Um, some of the errors that, um, the, that Christians fall into are the same errors that the Roman church fell into in the, in the Middle Ages, where they misunderstood the, what desire is, and they cast desire as something that isn't in and of self sinful. It's just only if you act out on it. We talked about that in a couple of our lessons. Um, that, that kind of thinking also propagated other erroneous uh, practices. And one such practice that was very common throughout the medieval times was the idea that you could do external things, external rites or rituals um, or practices that would, would absolve you from sins. In, um, for instance, in the Roman church, it was that of penance, uh, where you would go confess your sins to a priest, and the priest would absolve you. So as long as you said out loud what the sins were, you would be forgiven. And it would became a very external thing. It's not to say that people weren't genuine in their sorrow over their sin, but by setting up an unbiblical mechanism to confess your sins, it really skewed people's understanding of personal holiness and how to defeat sin in your life, how to see sin lessened in Christ. Uh, Christ made greater in your life. And so it became very um, ceremonial. And I know even my own upbringing, thinking about the Catholic Church, I thought if you did whatever you did um, during the week, as long as I went to confession regularly enough and recited those confessions uh, to the priest, it didn't really, it didn't curb my activity because I knew I could always go to confession. I'm not telling you everybody thinks that way. I just know that me and everybody I talked to thought that way. Um, that, hey, I could do whatever, literally would say to each other, I can do whatever, I'm going to, uh, uh, hey, dude, I can't believe you're going to do that. I'm going to confession on Saturday. And it would be that kind of mindset of as long as you go through this outward rite or ritual, you would ultimately be able to do whatever you want and be forgiven. And, and it propagated a, a terribly hypocritical faith. It wasn't even a faith. And many people were assured in the faith on the basis of externals like this and not something that dealt with the heart change that sanctification will do. Remember, doctrinally, we are, we've learned that sanctification is, a, is an ongoing work of God's grace. It doesn't stop where it helps us inwardly renews us. So um, outward expressions are, should only ever be expressions of what's an inward reality, whereas it had become a situation where it's just all externals. So this opening statement draws, uh, draws to its uh, substance really what Martin Luther said when he posted the 95 Thesis on the castle door at Wittenberg, the Wittenberg Church. Um, the statement, again, it says, we affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. Well, the first of the 95 protests that Luther gave, interestingly enough, were these. This is what the opening statement was for Luther. Number one of the 95 Thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Every day we're sorry for our sins. Every day we want to turn from our sins and turn unto Christ. Every day. 
That's for every born-again believer. It's a life of repentance. Repentance unto life. Because every time you turn from your sins, that's either evidence that God has done the work, or it might be that God has just done the work. It could be the initial salvation we experience when we repent and turn to Christ, or it could be whatever you throughout the day may be repenting of, because we are called to constant and consistent repentance. This word cannot be, and, and this is thesis number two by Luther. This word, repentance, cannot be understood to, to be referring as, to the sacrament of penance, confession. That is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. You can't, you can't look to that and in, in, in find that you have been absolved from your sins on the basis of this. Repentance is a saving grace. So when you turn um, from your sin to Christ, God's doing that work. And so we're looking to God for his grace every day. First time you come to Christ and are justified before him, he gives you awareness of your sins, gives you faith to lay hold of Christ. Then, in the process of sanctification, continually we're repenting of our sins. We're humbly admitting we're ongoing sinners who need God's salvation. We believe in the merit of Christ imputed to us, so we are free and we are at liberty to be honest about our sins. And that's this life of repentance. It does not, and this is the third thesis. I won't read all 95, but the first four are exactly with regard to this issue. Luther wrote, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, such as inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. So it doesn't mean to say that you don't have any outward connect to the sins, but those outward are, are the, the, the doing the things necessary to get yourself out of situations that might cause temptation into sin and so forth. So it's not saying no action should connect to what's inward, but it has to be an inward change first. That's the point Luther is making. And finally, uh, uh, several other of the 95 theses really address this, but the fourth one, the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self that is true inner repentance, namely till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We'll battle this. We'll have a life of repentance. It's normal for you to recognize your sin, feel, bad, feel sorry for it, be convicted for it, and ask for God's forgiveness all the time. You shouldn't feel like, I just did this yesterday. It doesn't count anymore. No, it still counts. Because that's the daily life of the believer. It's just this constantly repenting of our sins because we're, we're sinners. We're such sinners, every one of us. Um, uh, and that's, that's a setup for the admonition that will come in the rest of the statement. Drawing from Luther's language, the writers of this um, report, I think, do a good job in setting us up so we can think in terms of ourselves first and then how we interact with each other uh, going forward. It says then, and it gives a series of things to challenge our thinking with regard to the issue of same-sex attraction, how we may have looked at other believers who struggle with this or the issue itself, or fill in the blank with any other things we might be self-righteous about ourselves and judgmental about towards others. And I think there's a general application to what the report says. Notice the next statement. Where we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desires, we we call ourselves, it's supposed to say, we call ourselves to repentance. So we want to be repentant of any action we may take that puts someone down or shames somebody who's struggling with this issue um, because that's sinful in itself, to be that way towards our brothers and sisters who are all struggling in some fashion. So to the degree we've done that in this area, the report says, hey, church, we've got to think about this and turn from this. And if we're not being loving in this regard, we're not being patient in this regard, uh, we should turn from this. We should, uh, we are, should be called to repentance. 
And it could be anything. If you judge somebody for whatever outward reason you could imagine, you look at a certain, a certain way, oh, they must, they must not be eating right, so they're doing this, so this, so that. And we, in our minds, we, we should repent of that kind of approach to the brothers and sisters amongst us. You don't know their story. We don't know their, we don't know their situation. You can't extract all sorts of details from what you just see outwardly. So it's a call to be patient and compassionate towards one another, which I think the report's done a good job at encouraging us concerning. Then it says, the next statement, where we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts, desires, words, or deeds, we call ourselves to repentance. So in other words, while we're spending all this time focusing on the big sins, maybe I'm overlooking 15 in my life that I just, I'm over, I'm just made peace with, not going to change, no one else knows about it. To the degree we've made peace with other sins or have spent so much focus on one, one and others, we haven't been really honest about the totality of our own sin which puts us in a place of pride, which makes us even more judgmental. And so we have to repent of that kind of, that kind of um, isolated focus and view. Um, areas that we know should be, we should be mortifying, but we aren't. Um, recurring sinful thoughts that we've given up uh, trying to change or stop. Recurring desires that we just live with, or actions that we know are sinful, but we don't engage in killing those things. That's what it means here. It's a call to all of us. Then it says, where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame or have not dealt well with necessary God-given shame, we call ourselves to repentance. Now, this is the section that I asked Nathan to extrapolate on tonight because it deserves more than I can give it now. But basically, the two different kinds of shame that might occur, um, there's misplaced shame, uh, meaning that the kind of shame that uh, a person has had things happen to them, it's not their fault, it's come upon them and they feel shame. And we're not careful with how we deal with someone who's been in that situation and we're heaping misplaced shame on them. We're heaping it on them more when it wasn't their fault to begin with. They're struggling with something because of something was done to them. Um, and, we, and we're not careful and therefore making it worse for them. We're making that shame that they shouldn't have to bear any longer in Christ but still struggle with. And now we're heaping it upon them. Now, there might be the other case where someone's living in unrepentant sin or they're struggling with it, and there too, we're too heavy-handed in our approach. It's, it's right that they feel a certain amount of shame, um, but, but our approach to them uh, isn't going to lead them to repentance. It's, it's more, it's more uh, you know, laying a fist upon them. So whatever the case is, people are dealing with shame. Um, that's true of every, every sinner. Uh, how we deal with it as brothers and sisters will go a long way in helping that be remedied. Now again, shame and guilt, lots to be said here. Um, I think if this is an issue you want to learn more about, and all of us to some degree probably would do well to discuss this, tonight will be good for you. This is an area that I think Pastor Nathan is especially gifted in because I'd say I won't speak for him. He can challenge this if it's not true, but most counseling cases that you deal with, there's some level at which you have to get to shame and guilt issues with people, with couples, with families, whatever the case may be. So it's not, it's not uncommon. But again, time doesn't allow to dig too much more deeply into these things. The next statement starts the next big paragraph. Nevertheless, as we call ourselves to the evangelical grace of repentance, we see many reasons for rejoicing. So this calling to repentance comes, it's laid out in the 15th chapter of our confession really well. Um, Just the first statement, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Um, evangelical isn't meant denominational or uh, what tribe we're in as Christians. Evangelical is a, is a, a Reformation language for gospel. Uh, it's a gospel grace. It's uh, the preaching of the gospel grace. Repentance unto life. Repent. If I say repent, 
and turn unto Christ. It means turn away from your sins that have gripped you and turn to Christ. Now, it's a grace because I know when I issue that call for repentance, you can't actually repent lest God frees you. But the means he uses to free people is the preaching of that gospel with the Spirit of God quickening you so that you turn from your sins and unto God. That's, that's evangelical grace. Now, after you come to faith, as I mentioned, and I won't repeat further other than to say, you'll continue to have a life of repentance from there. Um, it says in the second statement of chapter 15 in our confession. By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, has contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy, of his mercy in Christ, to such that are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, or her sins, as to turn from them unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all ways of his commandments. So even as a believer, I could get caught up into a sin where I'm numbing myself to conviction about it, and then I apprehend the grace of God again afresh. Could be through the means of grace. Maybe I'm sitting in church some Sunday and hear the gospel, or I see it displayed here, or I'm just, God brings to my mind what I believe to be true about Christ, and yet I'm living in this sin. And so God, through this reminder of the gospel, makes me sick of myself for the sin that I'm turning. I want to turn back to Christ. It doesn't mean I wasn't saved. It means I was saved, and that he's working this sin. Now, if someone never repents of sin, that maybe they're not saved. Okay, that's the question. And so they need to repent unto life. Who's to sit here and judge? I just know I need to repent of my sins. That's what I need to do. And as long as I'm willing to repent of my sins, that means God's working. Are you sorry for your sins? Are you convicted of your sins? That's a sign of God's work of repentance, or conviction and repentance in your heart. Okay, with that, it says next, in the next statement, we give thanks for penitent believers. This is the concluding statement, right? of the whole report, so see it in in that context. Some concluding remarks. We give thanks for penitent believers who, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, are living lives of chastity and obedience. So there's an acknowledgement, because this could be a difficult report if you're struggling with that. You might not feel like it's appreciating what you're dealing with. It's saying at the end, no, there is an appreciation for that. There's not, it's not meant to say it doesn't matter what you're dealing with but it's dealing with some gross error in that area of teaching, so it has to speak in those terms. But it closes by saying, we do give thanks for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this. And that's true of anybody, uh, all of us to some degree, I assume, are struggling with something that other people don't understand about or they don't deal with it as the same way. Or not a lot of people do, let's say, because there's nothing that's un- completely um, unique. These brothers and sisters can serve as courageous examples of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience and gospel dependence. You know, when I think of somebody who's in, uh, come from substance abuse, if you've not come from substance abuse, you may not appreciate what their life is like on a regular basis to continually say no to those urges. Some are, are relieved of that completely. God, I have no believers that are like that, that. They don't even have an urge. But I know many a believer that while they don't succumb, they're constantly haunted by it. It's, it's, it's testing them consistently. It could be in other areas as well. And I think there should be an appreciation for what whoever sitting next to you may be dealing with in that regard. Um, it says in the statement, we also give thanks for ministries and churches within our denomination that minister to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and, truth and grace. There are several ministries that we have affiliated with our denomination anyways, churches, individual churches um, deal with. I mean, we have a counseling center. In our counseling center, although small, um, in conjunction with some other like-minded counseling centers, we, deal, we help strugglers all the time outside of our church as well try to deal with various issues of all sorts of natures. But we have some specific to this area, like uh, Harvest USA is a great organization that really works hard to promote the biblical understanding of sexuality and help strugglers. Um, so we, we encourage those 
um, ministries that are happening in the midst of the, or at least in connection to the PCA, that are honoring the Word of God, honoring the spirit of what's said in this report, and doing really difficult and challenging work. So we give thanks for those ministries. Then it says, most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners. And it's not Otter Brothers, it's Older Brothers. Um, they may be Otter, but there's a lot of Odd Brothers, but that's another story. Older Brothers and Younger Brothers, and this is talking about the older brother and the prodigal son, the prodigal son pro, uh, parable. You know, the older brother's attitude of self-righteousness, the younger brother who's just kind of un, you know, un, unchained a bit. Um, so both those who are the self-righteous and those who just completely find themselves bankrupt. Um, so we, he can transform either of those because they both need transformation. Tax collectors and Pharisees, insiders and outsiders. We rejoice in 10,000 uh, spiritual blessings that are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit, trust in the promises of God, and rest upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. So the great concluding statement to the 12 statements, I hope that you have found these as helpful as I have found them to be a bit of a guidepost in practical teaching. It's not anything new. Our standards actually uphold these things very well, but every, every era has certain things that come up and they have to be addressed. And I think this, this report does a great job.